And so with that, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and turn our attention to the Scriptures. And, and I'll just go ahead and preface before we do any reading at all. <clears throat> We've got a remodel going on under at the house. And, uh, and it's interesting. Because <laughs> we, we moved in 2006, 2007. Uh, I, I think as Amy said it was 07. I was thinking it was 06. And, you know, from then, you know, it's 15 years of, of glut that's built up over that time. And, uh, and so we've had to go through. And yesterday I tried on every piece of clothing, every shirt that I had just to see, you know, well, what, what do I need and what needs to go? And, uh, and so I got rid of several and made room. And now everything hangs straight and neat. And I'm like, man, that's awfully nice. <clears throat> now, Amy doesn't agree with me on this. I'll just go ahead and preface that. She doesn't necessarily agree with me to the extent that I would go. But, you know, every once in a while we need to go through our lives, don't we? And we need to, we need to start cleaning out closets. And that's what we've been doing is cleaning out the master closet. And that thing was in a bad, in a bad way, but... The floor's going to be redone, so you're not going to get the floor redone when the, unless the closet gets cleaned out. And so, uh, so it's it's kind of forced the issue, so to speak. But uh, but that's kind of the 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 thought that I would like to try to attempt to circulate around here this morning is the great decluttering, the great decluttering, because that's that's one of the things that kind of really gets on me. When I was a kid, before we got anything else, I've, I've, Amy's heard this a hundred times, so she's going to roll her eyes a little bit. Lily will too. Avery doesn't really care. But when I was a kid, whenever any, you know, we were going to have an influx for a birthday or Christmas or something, mom would make us go through and whatever we hadn't played with in six months, that was to go. And, uh, and so we would get rid of a bunch of stuff before all the new came in. And, and what we typically would do then is, is we would donate it. Mom knew a bunch of kids that didn't have very much at all. And so, uh, you know, we would go and we would give it to them and donate it to them. And, and we did that very routinely as a kid growing up. And, and so it kind of caused me to not really have a lot of attachment to things, to, to material things. And, and so I, 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 you know, I just don't really get attached to, to things like that. It, I, I keep it as long as it's useful to me. And then it, once it becomes, once it ceases to be useful, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me. And so it can go. Um, but there's a risk in that, isn't there? There's a risk in that. We're going to look at this here. And we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 22. And I'm going to read five verses out of Matthew 22, verses 23 through 28. And this is the Sadducees coming to the Lord, and, and, and we're going to preface here. Chapter 22 is a, is a series of challenges that's presented before Jesus where they're trying to trip him up in his doctrine. And the Sadducees come to him, and they're trying to trip him up in, in the doctrine because the Pharisees had never been able to give an adequate answer to the question that they were going to pose to Jesus. And we're going to start in the 23rd verse, 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. That the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, 
Moses said, "If a man die having no children, his brother shall mar- his his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother." Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. And so we're going to stop our our reading there for Matthew. And I'm going to read just one verse out of the book of Acts. And you don't need to flip over there. It's Acts 23 and 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And so we see here with the with the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't really have a lot, see a lot of value in spiritual things, did they? They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as a matter of fact, they come to challenge Jesus on the basis that the resurrection of the dead even exists. And so and and they were emboldened because the Pharisees, as I previously stated, had never been able to give an answer to this, but they would always digress because they weren't knowledgeable enough in the things of God to be able to give an adequate answer. Now they could have been adequate they could have been, but their tradition trumped what they believed as it, as it pertains to the scriptures. They had elevated tradition. The Pharisees had elevated tradition to where it was equal or above the word of God. And that's how you end up in the state that they were in. Uh, but they weren't asking the Pharisees in this instance, were they? They were asking Jesus Christ. They were asking he who was from the beginning. And they were asking the one who is omniscient, And what does that mean? That means he knows everything, doesn't he? He knows everything about the world and as it exists. And so we're going to get into his response here in just a minute. But what I want you to see is that the doctrine of the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, I should say, the doctrine of the Sadducees did not defer on spiritual matters very much from the Epicureans. And now, first off, you got to say, well, who are the Epicureans? Well, we we run into them in Acts chapter seventeen. Acts chapter Acts chapter seventeen. Start. We're going to read verse eighteen and drop down and read a couple others. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, "What will this babbler say?" Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now this is Paul at Areopagus, which we more commonly know as Mars Hill. And now what was the Areopagus? What was Mars Hill? We generally think of it as just the kind of this uh, area where they went and they would uh, have things tried out and they would have new ideas. Well, they would, but the thing that you need to remember is this is their Supreme Court. Uh, this is what they did. So they brought him essentially before their Supreme Court so that his doctrine could be examined for its truthfulness. And, you know, here you have a people in Athens who are so religious uh, that they have an idol for anything and everyone 
Uh, and, uh, uh, and here it is that he sees this altar that's written to the unknown God, and he uses that as an inroad and an opening to preach unto them Jesus, and part of that preaching was the resurrection, something that the Sadducees rejected as well, didn't they? Now, the Epicureans, they also rejected that, uh, and I want to get into the doctrine of the Epicureans here just for a minute, because I want us to know who it is we're talking about. I want to know what was the central tenets of their belief uh, here. Epicurus lived 342 years before Jesus Christ. He was a philosopher. He started a school in Athens. He was raised in Samos. His parents were Athenian. Uh, and so he was raised up and taught under some of the primary philosophers in Greece of the day. And so he started this school in Athens. And this is some of the things that the school taught. These were the central tenets of what it meant to be an Epicurean. And so the first and foremost was, don't fear God. Now, now as we go through these, I want you to know, I want you to nod your head if, you, if, if this sounds familiar. If you don't think it does, then that's okay too. But the first one was, don't fear God. That was the very first tenet. Why? Because he didn't think God was anything other than a material being. The second tenet was, don't worry about death. Why? Because life ends at death. There is nothing beyond death. And that was, in that, the Sadducees are in agreement with Epicurus. The third tenet, what is good is easy to get. Does that sound familiar? I think I just read to you the doctrine of most Christianity in the United States today. <laughs> Name it and claim it. And what is terrible is easy to endure. Well, that's not true, is it? Terrible things happen all the time and, and, and people get into a great, a, a terrible strait. No wonder these people were Stoics. <laughs> They're emotionless. <laughs> They're robots. They don't, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in being even killed and easy going, but every once in a while something terrible happens and it brings you down to a place where the only one that can lift you up out of there is God. And now I want to get into one more tenet of Epicurus before we go on because I just want you to kind of formulate this. This is the doctrine of materialism. Listen to what Epicurus's belief was as it pertains to creation. And tell me if this sounds at all familiar. On the principle of the tenets of, uh, of, of the witch uh, were that the world was not made by any deity or with any design, but it came into its but it came into its being and form through a fortuitous concourse of atoms. Maybe there was a big bang. <laughs> Does this not sound familiar? Of various sizes and magnitude, which met and jumbled and cemented together, and so formed the world and that the world is not governed by the providence of God. For though he did not deny the being of God, yet he thought it below his notice 
and beneath his majesty to concern himself with its affairs, and also that the chief happiness of men lies in pleasure. So that's what Epicurus believed. And now the Sadducees would not have agreed with Epicurus in every manner, but they agreed with him enough that you can see the peril that lies in the, the, the elevation of materialism in the world, can't you? It's not just in material things and possessions. That's bad enough. We'll touch on that. But, I mean, you look at some of the, the, the ways that people believe about the creation of the world. Uh, that it's just an accident or, or, or whatever. They don't believe God spoke the world to, into existence. Well, if, you, if you're here today and you don't believe God spoke the world into existence, but you say you're a Christian, I'd like to know how you reconcile the beginning of Genesis. Because you can't square that. Because God spoke all of that into existence. God spoke your own newly created soul into existence when he saved you. Right? We're created a new creature in Christ Jesus to whom belongs the power of creation other than God. And so that's what Epicurus believed. He believed that you, that happiness was found in stuff. That that material things was all that mattered in life. And there's a lot of teachings that go against that. But I'm gonna and I'm gonna touch down. I'm gonna go down here for just a minute. The 29th through the 32nd verse. It says, "For as much then as we are the offspring of God, this is Paul uh, at uh, Mars Hill. We ought not to think of the Godhead that is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by the art of man's de- and man's device. And the and the times of ignorance uh, and the times of this ignorance God winked at." but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And so Paul preaches Jesus, and he preaches the resurrection, and he preaches judgment there at Mars Hill. And nothing has changed. (laughs) What Paul preached at Mars Hill still stands today. It's God's will that none should perish and that all would come to the knowledge of of the truth that God sacrificed Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, so that man could be reconciled unto God, who was the one who spoke the world into existence. So if you're going to look at this materialistic way of viewing the world, You've got to be cautious and not let yourself get caught up in it. We're going to look at a couple of examples of men who got caught up in it. Now, the first one's going to be in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to touch on this one first. And this is the, the rich young ruler who comes to the Lord, and he says, Lord, what is it that I could do that I could inherit eternal life? Number one, the problem with his question there is the fact that he thinks he can do something that's worthy of an of eternal life. <laughs> it's not within the scope of our power to do anything that can bring us eternal life. But he's thinking that if as long as I'm obedient, then I can do something that would allow me to inherit eternal life. 
And he had, he had addressed Jesus by saying, Good master. And, and Jesus tells him to keep the law in 17, 18, and 19. And the young man looks at Jesus and he says, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack, what lack I? Or what, what, what lack I yet? His question here is kind of tacitly admitting, tell me what it is I'm lacking, Lord, and I'll do it so that I can inherit eternal life. You know what he says? The Lord looks at him and he says, okay, uh, if thou wilt be perfect, and that means complete, right? When you read perfect, what that means is complete. Uh, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Jesus told him, he said, lay up your, lay up your treasure in heaven. For where your heart is, there your treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? And why should he lay it up in heaven? Because in heaven, your treasure is laid up in heaven. Neither rust nor, uh, neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and thieves don't break through and steal. And so here he says, go and sell all the worldly possessions that you have, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now remember, he asked Christ, he said, what do I lack that I can inherit eternal life? Uh, what is it that I can do that I can be saved? The answer is, there's nothing that you can do. But Jesus here says, if you go sell all your wealth, you go sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me, then you'll have it. And you say, well, geez, why would Jesus tell him that if he did something, if he did this work, that he would be saved? He didn't tell him that. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, uh, to divorce all the things that you trusted in before, and I want you to place all your trust in me, all your faith in me, that I can save. <laughs> and, and Jesus can. Uh, but see, this guy was so entangled with the, with the, with the, with the stuff. I'm going to use that for just a, as a, a, you know, just a plain word. He's so entangled by his stuff. He's so wrapped up in it that he goes away from Christ with his head shaking. And the Bible tells us that he goes away sorrowful. Now this sorrow that he has, it isn't a godly sorrow. Cause we read in the Bible that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Well, what is godly sorrow? Well, it is feeling sorry. But it's not feeling sorry just for the sake of being sorry. See, he was sorry. He was sorry that the thing that was laid before him was something that he wasn't willing to do. Godly sorrow is sorrowing because of the sin that has been committed in the presence of God. That's godly sorrow. The church at Corinth sorrowed after a godly sort because of the sin that they had let dwell among them and the sin that they had committed in how they were keeping the Lord's Supper and observing the Lord's Supper. And Paul writes and says that I repent though I don't repent because you sorrowed after a godly sort. And godly sorrow worketh repentance. Makes you turn and go back to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Just like the man that hung on the cross, right? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the rich young ruler couldn't do that. He, he, his love and his trust was in his wealth. Now that helps you to understand a little bit what happens over in Luke chapter 12. And we're going to read about a certain rich man whose ground brought forth plentifully. Uh, and, and here's what it says. And he says within himself, uh, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He had a bumper crop. And he reckons this within his mind. What am I going to do now? I've got more, I've got more crops than my barns will hold. I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater. Build bigger barns. <laughs> store more grain, store more wheat, store more fruit. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, Thou hast much good, much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Well, he thought he had it, he thought he had the world the tiger by the tail, didn't he? He thought he had the world wrapped around his little pinky because he had so much wealth laid up in store. You ever been to a uh, you ever been to an estate auction? Well, you can go to some estate auctions and just marvel at the amount of stuff that people have got laid up in store. Who's enjoying them after they've passed away? Not the person who tore down the barns to build bigger barns, is it? No, he's gone on to see somebody else, hasn't he? He's gone on to, to stand before somebody else. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? They're not going to be yours anymore. They're going to go to somebody else. What do you do? Well, in each of these instances, the problem is it's not the wealth. The problem is the fact that they trusted in the wealth. The, they put their confidence in the wealth. The wealth is what really uh, was what gave them purpose and meaning, and it was what really drove their life. And so as you look at this year coming ahead, uh, you know, this is the first day of the year. You can look at it and you can say, I got this big closet that I need to clean out. I need to go through. And there may be a lot of things in that closet that I'm placing a lot of value on it, but at the end of the day, when all said and done, it really ain't worth a whole lot, and it might be piled up here causing more trouble than it's worth. Well, if the rich man would have said, you know what, I've got more than I can store. I'm going to give the rest of it away. That wouldn't have been a problem with the rich man. And if the rich young ruler had said, you know what, that's a law, that's not a very big requirement to just give away all my stuff. That's why the problem was he had to trust. Give away what you trust in and trust in me. I don't know what you're trusting in this morning. It may be your parents. I've got news for you. Trusting in your parents won't save your soul. Trusting in your grandparents won't save your soul. Trusting in whatever 
worldly thing it is that you value. It's not going to do anything for you at the close of the day. You're still going to stand before the same judge and you're still going to give the same account for your life. And the only question is going to be, is do you have an, ad- do you have an adequate defense when you stand before the judge in that day? And the only way you can have an adequate defense is if the judge is your, I'll show your attorney. Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness, but he's also the advocate for those that are in Christ Jesus. Those that have been saved, those that have had the blood of Christ applied to their hearts and had their sins washed white as snow, when they stand before the judge, uh, notice, they just hear this, don't they? Come ye blessed of my Father and inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Oh, we'll still give an account for every work we've done in this life. And that's not something to gloss over. I think we gloss over that fact too much sometimes. We will give an account for everything that we do before God. And I, uh, and, and so that's something that when we go through life, uh, we talked this morning about walking circumspectly. The reason you should walk circumspectly is because even though you're saved, you're still going to give an account to God about what you've done. And goodness knows, I'll have plenty to, I'll be able to stand there and say, Lord, I don't have an offense. Be a hypocrite to stand here and say, that ah, I've lived a perfect life. That would be a lie. Nobody has. Only one man ever lived a perfect life. Isn't that right, Sister Francis? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. In Him is life, and, 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 and He is the light of men. And so we look here. And, uh, and we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives an admonition about those things that offend you. And he actually revisited this time and time again. But I'm just going to use the one verse from Matthew 5.30. It says, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is... For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. In other words, that's not saying cut off your hand literally. He's saying do an inventory of your life. And and when you do that inventory, those things that are cluttered sin, cut those things out of your life and throw them away and don't bring them back in your house. Separate yourself that you may be a new lump. And don't think that I can tolerate a little bit of sin and get away with it because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so what's the whole matter? Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, they want to take that, and now in the day that it was written, that would have meant keep the law. But in the day that we live, it's keep and observe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is superior to the law. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ brings with it life. It brings mercy. It brings forgiveness. It brings all of these things in life that when we err, that we really need. It's the remedy, isn't it? The law points out the sin. The gospel is the remedy for the sin, and it's Jesus is the remedy. It's the only remedy that man's ever had. And you may say, well, I want to love my life. 
That's fine, you can love it, but you better love it in moderation. In the, out of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 17, he that loveth pleasure, and this doesn't just mean loveth pleasure, the he that loveth pleasure in a state of profligacy, somebody who loves pleasure overboard. It's all they seek after. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. Why? Because they spend their whole, every bit, everything that they have chasing the pleasure. And now there's some that are, are very wealthy that do this, but most people that fall into this, they, they, they don't end up very wealthy. They actually end up destitute. And if you think of most people who get addicted to some sort of substance, they, they usually end up destitute, don't they? That's not God's will. And then to, to kind of push that forward, it says, He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. And that means loveth wine and oil above, above and beyond that which was, is considered moderate. And so what? What's, what, what's the hope that we have to get rid of this clutter in your life? Well, the first and foremost thing is the day that you sought the Lord for the salvation of your soul, that should have been the day that you let go and loose the moorings from everything that you held dear in this world that you might gain the next one. <laughs> And he said, it ain't worth it. Uh, most people, when they give their testimony, they will stand and say, uh, they finally got to the point where they said, Lord, I can't do it without you. Lord, I'll do anything if you'll save me. Lord, I'll give up everything if you'll save me. That you have somewhere along the lines that comes into the equation, doesn't it? Because you have to love the Lord more than you love the world and the things in the world. And that includes mother and father and brother and sister and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle and whomever else it may be. He, the love that you have for Christ has to supersede the love that you have for each and every one of them. Acknowledge what he's done for you. Uh, and so we see here uh, that if you read the 22nd chapter of Job, I'm not going to do that. You go and read Eliphaz, and Eliphaz gives a bunch of arguments against Job. And, and I've just paraphrased a few of them. Uh, and he asks this because the, the, the charge that he's laying before Job is that Job is self-righteous. Uh, and so here uh, he lays out this argument. He says, can any be profitable to God? Is it pleasurable to God that one is righteous, that your ways are perfect? Uh, Will God judge you? Have you sinned a lot? Or haven't you sinned a lot? And how can God possibly know? And so Eliaphaz is hitting him with all of these, uh, and he's saying, Job, you are just somebody who's uh, uh, so lifted up and so in the world and so, so self-righteous that you need to repent. And repentance is always, always prescribed. But I want to start in the 6th chapter of the 23rd verse, and I'm going to finish up here in just a second. It says, just as Job answering Eliphaz, and he says, Will he plead against me, referring to God? Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward 
but he is not there. And backward, and I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way I take. You know, sometimes we, we fool ourselves, don't we, when we, when we think God's not seeing. God doesn't see what I do. God doesn't know what I'm doing. When you can't see God, God's doing something on this side or that side or in front of you or behind you. You don't know. And you just because you can't perceive it and understand it, you're in the same spot that Job was. But Job said this. Job said this was Job's statement here. But he knoweth the way that I take. Hey, it might not be it might not be easy to get rid of some of this stuff to to loose the moorings for some of this stuff that you may put too much trust in. You may have too much value placed in it. Job said, Hey, it, it may be hard. <laughs> he knows the way. He says, but when he hath tried me, when? When I stand before him and the books are opened and I'm judged out of the books and then another book is opened, isn't it? What book is that? The Lamb's Book of Life. You know, all your works are judged before the Lamb's book of life is ever opened. And it's not those things that determine whether or not you proceed forward into heaven, is it? What determines whether or not you proceed forward into heaven is if, you, if your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. If your name's written in that book, the things that you stand before God and are judged for, uh, you know, those, those material things that you may hold too precious in this world and you may really lament letting them go or whatever, you know, whatever it may be, whatever it is that's causing you, uh, that's, that's holding you back in this world, whatever it is that has caused you to fail. Job says, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Isn't that amazing? What state was Job in when he said this? He had lost everything, hadn't he? He had lost his all worth, all of his possessions. He had lost all of his children. He had lost his health. He had lost it all. But he wouldn't condemn the Lord, would he? And at the end here, or where we're getting closer to the to point where God calls Job into account for his self-righteousness, because Eliphaz was not arguing on the basis of... He was not arguing, making a good argument. But he says, I shall come forth as gold. Hey, it'll be worth it in heaven, won't it? It'll be worth it in heaven. Let's draw near to the Lord over the course of this next year. Hey, I don't care what it is that you've got in your life. If you're here today and you're saved and you're holding on to worldly things, they're holding back your spiritual walk. 
You may say, no, they're not. Yeah, they are. How many times, how many instances do I have to read where the love of material worldly things hindered their spiritual progress? It may have hindered their salvation. You can read about the church of Laodicea. Their love of worldly things and their belief that they didn't need the Lord was why the Lord stood outside the door of that church and not desiring to be let in because it had hindered them. Don't let the world hinder you. And so I'm going to finish up with this one, one verse. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I'm going to actually go to 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. That's what we just read, wasn't it? <clears throat> the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you want to be saved, you've got to do the will of God. What is the will of God? That all men everywhere would repent for their sin. So let's, let's uh, Brother Williams, if you've got a song, we're going to close.